Hey folks, Scott Weingar here, and this is the MCrit Podcast. Today on the podcast, decision-making. Now this is a subject near and dear to my heart. I actually wrote a book on emergency medicine decision-making uh, at the end of my residency, and I was going to make that my niche. The problem is uh, nobody really gets excited about emergency medicine decision-making. You know, with, with a exception of, you know, some stalwart souls who this is their thing. But for the most part, it just doesn't engender enthusiasm to the point where I think that book was read by my mom and Chris Nixon. That's it. Those are the only two. I think we probably only sold two copies. And, you know, I quickly changed my niche to critical care and resuscitation, a topic that gets people really excited. But, you know, perhaps as a result of that failed decision for career specialization, I haven't spoken about emergency medicine decision-making as much as I think it deserves to be spoken about on the MCRIT podcast, which is why when I saw my buddy, Andrew Petrosoniak, had given a lecture on this and then put up the key points on Twitter, I'm like, I got to get him on and we'll talk about this because it was a really great set of points that, you know, I, I went deep into the esoteric stuff of cognitive bias and heuristics and all of those things. But this is uh, much more accessible, the the tips that Andrew has put here. And I think, uh, I know some of you, you, you recoil from any non-clinical topic. Uh, don't stop listening. Finish this out. Because if your decision-making has not been evaluated, if you haven't self-evaluated whether you're making good decisions or not, chances are you're making bad decisions. And I promise you, this is not deep in the weeds of cognitive psychology. This is easy, you could use them tomorrow, type tips for decision-making that I think will really help you. Now, if you're hearing this piece, it means you're listening to the free foam version of this podcast. And this one is foam. Many of them are not. Many of MCRIT podcasts are now behind a paywall because we just could not keep going. Otherwise, it was financially uh, impossible. So at this point, end of the year, your budget's about to run out. You may have some extra CME money or funds for education available. Consider joining MCRIT so that all of them become free and open access for you, that nothing's behind the paywall, because this is going to help you take care of your critically ill patients. You know, I could barely pass the general emergency medicine boards at this point because I don't see those patients. I live, breathe, eat critical care and resuscitation. I think for most of you listening, it's the other way around. You are seeing general emergency medicine and are astoundingly better at it than I am, uh, and you're not seeing critically ill patients with the regularity with which it would take to become truly masterful, but you could benefit from the virtual experience of the MCRIT team seeing these patients on an everyday basis and take that knowledge and be able to take care of your patients. Take that information we get from reading every available extent journal in critical care resuscitation in all the tangential fields and getting that information at your fingertips, finding out the most cutting edge way of taking care of really sick patients. So please consider now, right before the new year, joining MCRIT. Just go to mcrit.org slash join. And all of a sudden, you don't have to worry, is this a free episode or not? You'll be able to do the best critical care for all of your patients. All right, let's get into the show. Andrew, tell people who you are and what you do. Yeah, my, thanks for having me, Scott. I'm Andrew Petrosoniak. I'm an eMERGE doc and trauma doc in Toronto, Canada. 
And I spend a lot of time doing work with simulation and improving systems and supporting clinical infrastructure and redesign using simulation. Let's talk decision-making. I become interested in it because I don't think that we ever get taught really how to make decisions. We get taught how to treat sepsis and the decisions that are related, but the meta decision-making content Considering the number of decisions we make in a shift, in a day, in our lives, we're we're not that good at it. Or by and large, we're not. I think people can get better. And so I've started to get interested in how we can make, how we can structure our lives, but also our clinical focus to make better decisions more often than not. And a toolkit or a suite of options that you can mix and match. And over time, if you start making small adjustments in how you think about your decisions, you'll get better over time. And I'm not certain that, like, I never learned that in residency. No one ever taught me that. Um, I think with people, thought leaders like yourself and some of the, some of the cross and people, Jeff Norman, and some people have started to study this, but it's not like widely accessible to the everyday clinician. Or I think you've put your finger on it is I loved reading your Twitter thread. I, I did not have the pleasure of seeing your actual lecture on this, which is why I wanted to bring you on the podcast, but it, these are accessible. When you actually read the literature on decision-making that'll be published in the annals, it's, I think, not at the level of people that have not even thought about their own decision-making process. So that, that's why I wanted this as an introduction to, to the process. And I, I think you encapsulated the breadth of what goes into becoming a good decision-maker. So let's go through it. Now you have, I believe, eight points that you put in a Twitter thread, and it was the yeah. basis or the summary of a lecture you had actually done. Let's go through them one by one, and we'll talk about them as we go. There's Tell me what number many. one is then, Andrew. Yeah, so number one, I think is this idea of reducing decisions altogether when possible. And I think that if you can design your environment, and that means either a physical environment or your cognitive environment to reduce decisions, because you know that you're going to have to make them in your day. But if you can eliminate them or create rules divorced from the emotion and the immediate decision, and if you can do that ahead of time, then you're in a better position. And this isn't novel. We have decision rules. The folks out of Ottawa have created this so that it makes it easier taking this kind of principle. And we might also say we use this if patient with chest pain, we automatically do a troponin. Okay, that's fine if I don't want to get in the merits of doing that, but that's a decision that has been removed and it's a default. But I think we can probably dig into, there's a lot more occurrences that are common or uncommon. For instance, the idea of a blunt trauma arrest, how are you going to address that patient when they come in? You can make those decisions ahead of time and just have a set of rules and an off-ramp. There's a particular element of this patient that is going to make me deviate. But by and large, I'm going to put an ultrasound on understanding the base rate success of this patient, which is unfortunately low. If they have a blunt trauma arrest, I'm going to put an ultrasound on, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and then I'm going to stop. Or I guess if you feel compelled, you're going to do an ED thoracotomy. But these decisions can be offloaded so that there's no decision in the moment. I, I love this. And I love that it's number one because it should be because decisions are pain. This is what hurts in emergency medicine is if you have a shift with too many decisions that have no clear answers, it's going to steal 
your capability to function well. They eat away at you. And by the end of your shift, we know now, we have literature saying you make bad decisions compared to the beginning of the shift, that the that pool of decision-making power has been sucked down to dry. So eliminating decisions whenever possible leaves you the space to do it when you actually need to. And I love some of the examples you've given of how to take this down. Like I look at this from a top-down level in that if there is literature support, then that is my number one. You mentioned Nexus or the Canadian C-spine rules. Um, you should just be using them because they've been validated, they've been studied countless times. No, it's a no-brainer. That's how I'm going to clear a C-spine. If those don't exist, maybe your national society has a guideline. If you follow that, you're in good shape. If they don't, maybe create one for your department and actually say, this is how we're going to do it. And that, that broadens the risk of decisions where there's not a great answer one way or another. This is how we're going to do it. For your chest pain workup, I'd love to see a department have a flowchart of here's how we're going to handle working up chest pain. If they have this, we're going to do troponin. If they have this, we're not. We're going to send these patients for further provocative testing. You don't have to think about it anymore. But then if you have none of those things, make a personal decision rule for yourself whenever possible such that you don't have to think about it. All right. Is there anything else we should add to that one, Andrew? No, I think if you're trying to eat healthy, at the end of the day, like you, you're great in the morning, you've got that beautiful smoothie. At the end of the day, you're just crushing chips, right? Because you've just made so many decisions. You can't, you just can't hold off on some of these challenging situations. If you can design yourself to not have chips in your house, or if you can design your clinical environment to support X, Y, what you just described, a department algorithm or a consensus among your group about how to manage something chest x-rays for all chest pain. I don't maybe not, whatever. But the idea that you can do that ahead of time so that you don't have to waste time in the moment and waste cognitive effort because you know you're going to have more challenging decisions. Love it. All right, what's number two? So number two, I have listed as like signposting decisions. And these aren't in the, any particular order. The first one I think is probably the most important that we just talked about, but these might have some back and forth overlap. But the idea, and Scott, you're I've heard you talk about these this kind of thought process in the moment, but having a, for instance, an airway situation ahead of time at, and I'll use the example at 80% O2 saturation, we are going to stop. If we get there, we are going to do a BVM or put in the LMA or do something. But this idea that we we can predict some elements of what are going to happen in front of us and then have a predefined decision so that we don't run into this situation. And I'm sure you've seen it. And maybe I've certainly been, I've, I'm guilty of it. You get to 80% when you're intubating, you're like, I just need another two more minutes. And then you're at 60% and then you're at a cardiac arrest or whatever it might be. So it, one, it spreads out accountability to your whole team by doing that. Cause now I've been in a trauma resuscitation where I said, we're leaving in five minutes. And our clerical has told me, Petra, you told me we're leaving in five minutes. We're not leaving. And I'm like, mm, you're right. Okay. That's on me. We got to move. And if you set out these predefined decision points that are safe, because you've thought about them separated from the emotion that's occurring right in that moment, I think we can get to better spots and not have that that lead into to, to sort of stuff that that maybe we sh we should have already off ramped and just done. I think this one's fantastic. I love it. What immediately came to mind when I read it was the way I handle my gastroenterologists when I feel they probably should come in and scope a patient with an upper GI bleed, but it's not the absolute they need to get in here case. 
And a lot of times they'll leave it as, oh, let's see how they do. And that's okay, but then you have to call them back and fight for another decision between you two. I like to signpost, just as you say. All right, I get it, we'll watch them, but if I'm transfusing my third unit of pack cells, I need you to come in. That, now, we've put the stake in the ground. It actually gives both of us a clear point of, I could call them back and say, look, we've just transfused the third unit of blood, you gotta come in now. And now they're obliged to go by their own agreement earlier versus, all right, let's see how they do. I hate let's see how they do because then I have to reinitiate all of the pain to, to get them back to the point of making a decision. That's a great example because then you mutually agreed on that as, and it's not happened yet. So you're both okay with that. You agree on it. Maybe they're pushed back and like, no, make it four. And you're like, no, whatever, fine. But you mutually agree on it with no, no one has stake in it at that moment other than just a committal to that decision. And you then have an opportunity agnostic to the emotion that is, that is there that will, if you call back and you hadn't done that and you're like, guys, it's time to come in. And then they're like, no, but I'm really tired and I got to scope tomorrow. And then it's a back and forth and it's too emotional. Yep. Perfect. All right. Number three. So number three, this one, and this ties into the next one about probabilities. So these two go together. So this one being, this one being the idea that we need to deliberately consider alternatives. This what outside of emergency medicine, this is what all like high level decision making experts talk about that we fail to consider adequate alternatives. And, or we, and this, we do this in emergency medicine. We do, we make, we make differential diagnoses. So we do this purposefully, but we don't, we'll often come up with the most available ones, a patient with chest pain. And then we list out three what we don't do often, and again, I'm I'm full victim to this, is there anything else that could be after I list out those three differentials or four differentials, forcing yourself to think a little bit harder and a little bit longer and playing a bit of a devil's advocate, like maybe those three are all wrong. Is there actually anything else? And where this then ties into is we should be assigning probabilities, actual numbers to our estimates. And so if I have a patient with appendix or if I have a patient with right lower quadrant pain, I could say, yeah, I think it's likely appendicitis. Unfortunately, humans see likely as it is. And they hear when they hear unlikely, it isn't. And so if I say this patient has about an 80% chance of appendicitis, okay, fine. That's based on my clinical expertise. That means that there's by default, by that by default, it has a 20% chance it's something else. And that then forces me to figure out what the heck that 20, 20% chance is. And so I think those two things together will get us to better decisions because we'll think about alternatives more frequently. I love both of these and I love them in combination. Do I want to talk about the assigned probabilities? So thinking quantitatively is the key move in emergency medicine that I don't see our trainees actually doing. And you can prove this to yourself. Ask them, I, I do this all the time, what's your pretest probability of pulmonary embolism in this patient w without their decision rules? They're just, what's your number? And they'll be, oh, they're high. And you'll be like, okay, what are you basing that on? And they'll be like, oh, they took a plane flight and now they're complaining of leg pain. All right, we have these decision rules. Let's see if they agree with you. 
and you poke that stuff in, they're low pretest probably. So now you have a, a market discrepancy between what they would have gone on. They can't use D-dimer anymore. They have to get a CT angiogram versus what a validated decision rule tells them. We could talk about why that discrepancy is there. Oh, they took that plane ride. When you look at it in the literature, the plane ride has no bearing. It has no actual ability to move the needle on pretest probability for pulmonary embolism. Yeah, it's associated, but it, when they actually put it into decision rules, it fell out because it was a useless thing about whether they took the plane trip or not. And they fixated on that. And you could go further and ask them, okay, high pretest probability, what, what's the number? What's the percentage on that? Just as you're saying, Andrew. And they'll be like, oh, it's 95%. But then when you actually look at the studies that went into this, what made it high pretest was something like 40, 50, 60%, nowhere near these high numbers. And when you talk about low, low is still, in most studies, 8%, 6%. It's not nothing. And then you get them the idea that it's not, low doesn't mean you don't have to work it up. Low just means it can be worked up with a, blood test like a D-dimer, and forcing them to think in these numbers, forcing them to give percentages to their differentials, just like you're saying, Andrew, it's game-changing. You find out where their true basis of how they're deciding that the priorities of a differential come from, and you find out some of them are right, but a lot of them are not good. Where I think it, there's a ton of value is actually even comparing. So when I hear we have a mismatch, that mismatch represents an opportunity to learn and you have to decide which one is more likely to be right. But if I said, Scott, I think this patient has an 80% chance of an appendicitis and you said not 50, then we need to have a conversation about where are you coming from and where am I coming from? Because clearly we have a massive range that is discrepant. In fact, I had an example where I was on the phone with the urology staff and I said, I think this is, and I didn't even mean to do this. It wasn't on purpose, but I said, hi, this guy, I'm like 80 or 90% chance has a septic stone. And what I had conveyed to the staff, the attending, he didn't hear everything he needed to hear. So he's like, no, based on what you told me, this is like a 50%. Now I didn't ask him to give me, he did, that was just the natural flow of the conversation. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. Here's what I also forgot to tell you. And he's, ah, okay, bump that up. And then we had a more insightful and a better conversation without even, this wasn't even on purpose that we were batting around probabilities, but it was a great example of how I clearly didn't convey my concern other than through a probability, but that then tweet in his mind is, like, oh, that's interesting. And then he told me where he was coming from. And then we were able to come together and then ultimately make a better decision for the patient. I love that. I love that story so much. That's so good. It, and it, it brings up one in my mind. I was talking to a colorectal surgeon who didn't want to take a patient to the OR for mesenteric ischemia. He's, the patient's going to die on the table. And we could have left it there, but I'm like, what percentage do you think the chances of that patient dying on the table? And he's like, I would guess she has an 80% chance of dying. I'm like, well, one in five. I, I want those odds for my family member. Like that, that doesn't seem horrible. If you told me she has a 98% chance of dying, then maybe I'd say, oh, all right. At shock trauma, that 98% wouldn't be enough. It would have to be like 99.999 and maybe even not then, but okay, I'll take 2%. I'm not going to take a 20% chance of survival as adequate to say, we're just going to let her die in the emergency department. Yeah, I love it. I love forcing this quantitization on it. All right. What do we got for number five? Oh, Link up number five and the last one. This is this idea that we learn from our decisions. And that means that we actually reflect on them. And we can do that both. We can debrief them with the team, which is the number eight. 
and learn from them ourselves if they're individual ones. And a lot of kind of high level decision making now start to push this idea that we should have a decision making journal because it's likely we're going to make the same decisions over and over in our lives and clinical lives, particularly. And when you start to do the decision making journals, and it doesn't have to be fancy, like just grab a notepad or even you don't even have to write anything down. But the idea of writing something down is really powerful in that one, it asks in there's different things out there and we could share some in the show notes, some examples, but some key elements are what do you think is going to happen? What did happen? What was your probability that you thought that X, Y, and Z is going to happen? What was your emotional state when you made that decision too? Because that we undervalue the emotion that we're in or the emotional state we're in when we make a decision. And you've spoken about this before. We discount that as a driver for what decision we make so frequently. And so if we report that we made that crike under stress versus no, we were totally calm when we did that and made that decision to get front of the neck access. I suspect there will be differences in how that whole plays out. Maybe there wasn't, but it's worth reflecting on. And then we can start to consider how can we improve? Because that's what it's all about. We focus on outcomes for our learning. We should focus on processes from our learning. And for instance, give a hypothetical example of a case, make a decision to, to, to intubate a patient with a stab wound to the neck. Things are, all of the bad things are happening. The neck swelling, you have a, a, an obvious expanding hematoma and you get the airway and, and you do it maybe fiber optic and it goes okay. That's great. The outcome is great. And usually that's where we stop. We say, great, we deep, we learned, we did a great job, high five. And yes, we're very happy we got that. But maybe we got lucky. And the idea that luck exists as part of what happens in medicine is not commonly discussed. Or maybe we actually made a bad decision with going with a fiber optic. Maybe we should have delayed. Maybe we should have gone VOR. Maybe we should have done front of the neck access. I'll get you. Those are the different options. Maybe we should have done something differently. And accepting the outcome as the sort of the anchor to the decision is not going to allow us to ever get better. Because when that patient rolls in again, maybe actually there was a transection and we should have never done what we did. And this idea of learning from decisions is something linking that with a journal. What did I feel at the time? What was I thinking was going to happen? What actually happened? And is there a different way I could think about it is really critical. Damn, it's so good. So good. Yeah, two two things come to mind. In terms of the point you made about bad decisions, sometimes lucking into good outcomes, this is one of the most dangerous things in emergency medicine, not just because of the original event, which could have gone wrong based on this faulty decision-making, and it just by happenstance didn't. It, it reinforces the bad behavior because you get this enormous high from that successful intubation that probably shouldn't have been done in the first place. It's going to subconsciously predispose you to do the same thing. You're gonna want that same dopamine hit. And it's super dangerous. In fact, there was this recent case I was presented where they decided because the patient was morbidly obese that what they clearly would have had in that circumstance as a 
indication for intubation. They're like, well, this patient's gonna be a hard intubation. So we decided we're not gonna do it. We're gonna watch them instead. And it turned out okay. And everyone was lauding that decision-making. And I'm like, no, there, there's, if the decision was, if they were thin, we clearly would have intubated them, but we're not because they're morbidly obese. That is gonna go really badly. It, and the problem is that it might go really badly one time out of five, which is not gonna do the self-reinforcement that it needs to be done. It, this is what happens with bad intubations all the time. Bad technique only fails one out of every 10 times. That's a mark of really bad intubation if you have a 90% success rate with your technique on a non-difficult airway. That doesn't get reinforced. Bad driving doesn't get reinforced. I know I've spoken about this in other lectures is people could be horrible drivers. That only means they get in one accident every five years. There's no way that's gonna reinforce that you're a crappy driver. You're just gonna blame that on the other person for that one accident every five. Yes, I love this and I love committing to it to really review the counterfactuals and decide, okay, it worked, but was it the right call in the clear light of day? And then the other point that came to mind with this decision journal, which I think is brilliant, Andrew, is a lot of people in emergency medicine don't even follow up on the decisions they make. So it's not even a question of making the journal. They don't know if the decisions were successful or not because they're not taking the time to find out what that patient with altered mental status actually had or whether that patient they sent home or not actually bounced back. The first step of that uh, committing to a journal is actually committing to finding the results of your decision. Yeah, we would never, if you're trying to get better at basketball, you would never take a shot and then just close your eyes and walk away and say, yeah, I think what I did was right. You would watch the shot go in or not, and then you'd make an adjustment. Th this happens, and I get it, it's difficult in emergency medicine, but, it, it, but no one said that getting better is easy. It does require effort. Effortful practice is essential. And decision-making, we practice intubation. We practice the, the act of intubating and we get better at it from a medical student to an attending. We don't always practice decision-making as an entity. And considering it's probably the most common thing that we do on a shift, it should be in the repertoire of things that we practice and also seek out opinions from others on that. And in a way that's constructive and flattened hierarchy so that we can just learn. Because of course, there's going to be bad outcomes and there's going to be good outcomes. And the outcomes are going to be not necessarily linked to the process that you employed, as you already alluded to, in that when you make that decision. You can do your own reflection. And I think that's really important and following up on things, but also debriefing the case. And we'll often say, Hey, oh, if we gave the, use the example that I gave around debriefing this stab wound to the neck. Oh yeah. Great job. Everybody. Anybody have any comments? Like we got the intubation. Great. We should actually have different words to the, those. There should be different questions like, okay, what were you thinking when you made that decision to use that technique? What did you think the likelihood was that you were going to be able to get it? Were you concerned that there was a, a transection of the uh, trachea that would have been maybe missed or partial? Did, did that ever cross your mind? What did you have as a mitigation strategy to that? Was that the right move? Was there anything else we could have done differently? And so it's a really, you're interrogating the process, not the person, but the process so that you can really get better the next time. But like you said, you don't double down on that same decision. The trauma surgeons are far ahead of us on this because they've evoked an attitude where you could rip apart the decisions 
and it's not taken personally. You have to build a thick skin. It takes a while, but you get to the point where they could say, oh, that was an idiotic approach to this case. That clearly should have been a thoracotomy before the laparotomy. And, and they go home and then they don't feel that their character is being ripped up, or at least when it's done well, and I've seen it done mm. badly. But when it's done well, they've really created a culture where at their M&Ms, they could just tear apart decisions without it tearing apart the person. We all make bad decisions, and the way to debrief it is to just be able to talk about the play and not the player. And the one thing I would add to that is that we never or very rarely talk about, one, we rarely review good outcomes, right? It's, we have a bias towards bad outcomes. So one, we should review good outcomes, because one, maybe there's stuff that we should be doubling down on, meaning doing over and over because there's some actually good practice there and we can find that out. Or two, maybe there's something that we did that we shouldn't do again, but we just happened to be in that one in 10 chance that we did. So this idea that we review cases based on outcome is problematic. We sh Obviously, we need to review outcomes that are a problem, but we also need to review outcomes that go well. and where there's a mismatch with like where there's a mismatch between the expected outcome and the actual outcome there's probably a ton of power there like maybe there's less value in reviewing the 98 year old who has cardiac arrest who has a PEA or an asystole and then you're the what's the expected outcome the expected outcome is death but maybe if you thought that 35 year old with PEA and they died, maybe there's actually, maybe that wasn't the expected outcome. Like you thought you could actually get them back. You should review that or vice versa. They actually do. You should still review that because you thought maybe they were going to die and they actually survived. And so whenever there's a mismatch between expected and actual outcomes, that should be a, a focus for review. Perfect. All right. We got one more left, Petra. So the last one is using pre-mortems, post-mortem being what you would review at, after an actual case, but using this idea of a pre-mortem and, and Gary Klein and Daniel Kahneman talk about this. And this is this idea that you assume that something has failed and then brainstorm all the reasons why, but before it actually has. And so for instance, if you assume that you, you, are unable to secure the tube on your intubation. And then you ask yourself, why is it that I could not do that? And then you can put in place mitigation strategies to prevent that. Like maybe it's maybe it was my ergonomic setup, maybe it was my hand position. Go through all of those things and make sure that you're able to do that. And you can do that for anything. Assume that something goes wrong, but do it beforehand because it's now free information that you can then use at the time of you're faced with that decision. Fantastic, yeah. Every case, I ask myself before I discharge or admit, how am I gonna get M&M'd? How am I gonna have a morbidity and mortality on this case? And that question has saved my butt so many times because it forces you into the mindset of, I, I am now up there, I failed. How did I fail on this case? Oh, I obviously I missed the mesenteric ischemia. Or, and it just does that last little check of, and maybe that's a cynical way to approach it, but it works for me, is I don't want to be M&M'd. In fact, I really value not being the content of a morbidity and mortality conference. So asking that question beforehand is much more potent than addressing it afterwards. All right. Is there any summary you want to put in here, Andrew? I think we just talked about eight different ways to improve decisions. I think to use all of them all the time is not necessary, but I think to be able to use them 
in, on occasion at different times in different situations and having a few tools at your disposal to get better. I think that one, reducing decisions altogether is probably something we should be doing and thinking about in our day-to-day. Two, the idea of using probabilities on a regular basis. And three, learning from our decisions. Those are probably the three most important things that we can do. That is fantastic, man. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. It was a pleasure. Great conversation. All right. Now we went through all that pretty quickly. So I want just here at the end to go through each of the eight points and just uh, put them out there. So if you had to write them down afterwards or you wanted to come back and get a quick summary, this is the place to listen. So number one, reduce decisions whenever possible. If you don't need to make a decision, save that potency for decisions you have to make. If you're making everything de novo in the course of a shift, you're going to run out of brain power and decisions are going to get really crappy by the end. So try to eliminate decisions wherever possible. Two, signpost decision points. Say ahead of time when your brain is in good shape, uh, if you hit a sat of 80%, you're going to bail out and place an LMA or what have you. Just making those decisions up front when your brain's in good places uh, stop you later on when you're in the midst of things from making bad decisions. All right. Number three, deliberately consider alternative options. Even if you're like, this is definitely X, consider Y and Z and all the others um, and just put them out there. And then the next one's linked up. Number four, assign probabilities to the decisions because starting to think in numbers is uh, a huge jump forward, qualitative to quantitative, actually assign probabilities in your head, even if they're not perfect. You know, Some of them, we have decision rules, you could get real tight numbers. Some of them, you can't, doesn't matter. Assign numbers in your head. And uh, I recommend a book here that I have in the show notes called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. And she's a professional poker player. And she says, you know, you can't consider uh, things to be, this is what it is. You have to say, uh, this is what it is. This is the other things it could be and start assigning numbers in your head. And then also it discusses the other part we spoke about in the course of this podcast, which is sometimes you make uh, decisions that are bad that lead to okay outcomes because not every bad decision always leads to a bad outcome and how to evaluate for that. So there you go. That's number four. Number five, learn from your decisions. And Petro talks about having a decision journal and actually tracking down the results of your decision. And you now have what your effective state was, you know, in terms of emotions, in terms of the stuff that made you think this was the right choice. And then when you see the results, you could go back and actually look at whether your decisions were good or not. Um, number six, I don't think we hit this one in the podcast. I think we missed this in the course of our enthusiasm talking about all the other points. So I'll say it here. Number six is use one-line summaries. And the idea is that sometimes the details actually uh, dissuade or, or send you astray from an easy decision because of all the extraneous things that are hung upon this framework that is pretty straightforward. You know, a case that brings this to mind is I had a resident present to me, and I think he presented for like five minutes on all the patient's past medical history and like 20 separate symptoms and all these things. And the way my brain works, because I try to, you know, just bare bones, everything, um, you know, I kind of intrinsically do this point of using one-line summaries is I'm like, okay, because he, he wanted to send this patient home. And I'm like, okay, so what you're telling me is you have a 48-year-old male with a previous cancer history who has uh, the inability to urinate. And so you, you want to send that guy home, right? The, and what they're going to hear at the M&M is uh, back pain, cancer history, can't urinate. And you're cool, send that patient home. And he's like, oh, God, no, no, we got to do an MRI, you know? And I'm like, dude, I'm no smarter than you. I just, you know, your whole story, what I heard is, you know, guy, cancer history, back pain, and and can't pee. Uh, you know, uh, maybe it's being dumber in these circumstances is more helpful because, you know, you're super smart and you're analyzing all these signs and symptoms. And I'm just hearing like, 
guy, back pain, cancer, can't pee, I think we need an MRI. So sometimes being dumb is the way to go. You just cut through all the bullshit to one liner and all of a sudden the decision becomes easy. All right, number seven, use the pre-mortem. Gary Klein's idea of it's all wonderful doing the autopsy at the end of a failed decision, of a disaster, of an M&M. Uh, what if you did that ahead of time when you still had the ability to make a change and you know put in the same factors uh, that you would have talked about at the M&M before you actually make the decision? So pre-mortem, key move. And then number eight, debrief. Talk to other people or do it in your own head. Use your mental simulator of was this decision good or not? Was it a bad decision that turned out okay, but I shouldn't do it in the next time? Um, so there you go. So there are your eight points. I hope this was helpful. If it is, uh, talk about it in the comments. You can reach out to Petro as well. Um, if you want to book on emergency medicine decision-making, I think it's still in print. I have no idea. Um, but it's out there, emergency medicine decision-making by myself and uh, my buddy Peter Wire. And... Um, yeah, well, there you go. That That's the podcast on decision-making. I hope you liked it. Um, this is the point of the show where I always mention I stop putting it up front so as not to annoy you people, but there's some out there that this could really help. I, I do medicine coaching. That's the MCRIT coaching company. Uh, I am a certified executive coach, but uh, my specialty is physician coaching, and I coach people on things like burnout, overwhelm. You've just gotten a leadership position and have no idea what to do with it. Uh, you're having a habit or a behavior pattern that is getting you in trouble at work, and now they're saying, oh, you know, if you don't shape up, we're going to fire you. I could help you with that. And it's not a good position to be in that if you do something one more time that you're already predisposed to do, you get fired. Don't don't let that happen. Come talk to me. So just go on over to mcrit.org slash coaching, mcrit.org slash coaching. Get in touch. Uh, we'll talk and we'll see if we're a fit and then maybe coaching will be helpful to you. All right. This has been Scott Weingart for the MCRIT podcast saying bye-bye.